deceptive manipulative. Is also a former social worker and a political campaign activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Eerie Americus. This is your host, Christy Hull. This is Vicki Ayala. How you doing today, Vix? I'm actually a little bit sad because, as you guys know, Christy is moving to Colorado, and I think it just kind of hit me on the way here. But I'm really happy for you to start this new journey and to have somewhere to visit because New York really sucks sometimes. It does. And I'm sure you guys are happy that I'm finally moving because you guys have been hearing about this like week after week. So I'm sure you guys are over it. But uh, it'll be fine. I'm nervous, but I'm also super excited. I think so. you're good nervous because you like you just look calmer because you know you're leaving. Yeah, I think I'm stressed out over the logistics of it. But like, I'm not afraid. It's weird. It's like a real calming feeling. I already feel better. Everyone, even my coworkers today were like, your allergies are going to get better. Like, you know, it's bad when your entire office is telling you your allergies will get better when you leave. Like, like you're, you're definitely the allergy girl when people yeah, are like, like, yeah. So they're I'm like, I'm excited for you to like be able to breathe and not be breaking out into hives all the time. That's and literally happening to me, folks, by the way, because I have so much chemical allergies and like there's so much pollutants in the air. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be good for me. I think it'll be something different, something new. A lot of people are telling me that I'm super brave, which is interesting, I guess, because people don't really leave where they're used to. Like, you know, because change is hard. And this is not just like I'm moving to a new apartment. You're moving across the country. And I think that people aren't really used to that, even though you've done it before. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm like, oh, Chrissy's done it before. She'll I've be done fine. it, but a lot of people haven't. So for for me, I guess it's like... So many people want to do it. And I'm looking at you like, you're doing something that I don't have the balls to do. <laughs> and that's, I think that's what it is. I guess that's true. Chrissy's yeah. not scared of anything except for clowns. clowns. But <laughs> she's not scared of anything. So like, that's why, to me, that's not... I'm just like, that's fine, Chrissy. You'll be fine. And But yeah, I'm not. I'm sad just in the sense of, you know, this is something we've been doing for a while and I really love it. And so in that sense, I'm sad, but I'm not sad at all. I'll talk to you all the time. Yeah. I'm going to see you. You're going to come back. I'm going to annoy everybody the same way I still do. So it's going to be like I'm going to see you and it just makes it better for when we visit. You know, this podcast has been something great because it has brought Christy and I closer, even though we've been friends for a long time. We've never, we've, we've become a lot closer and she's helped me, you know, get over a lot of my OCD-ness and my need to control everything. And she's helped me get better at kind of managing time. So we've all, we've balanced each other out in a good way, I think. So, so I'm just I ho- very grateful for this podcast. For and I hope it reflects that. a little bit. So that's it. But yeah, so that's that's what's going on. I found an interesting story on phantomandmonsters.com. Dated, it's July 24th, so just recently. And... It says, whatever it is, it follows us. Oh, okay. Let me start off with my first encounter with this being. My friend and I were on the way back to the house when I turned down my road that I live on. A few feet down the road, which I actually ended up getting stuck in the snow in that exact spot twice about a year after this, we both see a pair of eyes. Orangish, yellow eyes. Living in Indiana, covered with cornfields in both directions as far as you can see, I think it's an animal and I start to slow down. The eyes aren't moving like normal animal eyes do. They usually scurry away or at least turn and disappear into the cornfield. Now, the closer I got, I can't describe how I could see the details of it because it was so dark. Like it completely lacked all light. My headlights weren't illuminating the being at all. 
but basically it looked like a crouched perch skeleton. It was completely bones, but somehow still huge. At this point, we're pretty close. So I sped up thinking some creepers creeper shit is about to happen to me and take off with my car. As we passed the being, staring directly into the eyes to what it was, it disappeared. Like a piece of paper. I was looking at him like, you saw that shit too, right? And every time we talked about it, it'll come up. Which I'll share each one of these stories here. This experience was a week later. The next time I saw this entity, I was near my road, about five miles from my house. Same orange eyes. It was walking across the road from right to left, towards someone's yard. And when I say walking, I mean on all fours. It was completely black and huge this time. It had a tail that was probably at least three feet long. As it was passing the right side of the road to the left, it stopped in the middle of the road. Mind you, I'm driving straight for this thing, 60 miles an hour. I slowed down and it stopped in the middle of the yellow line in the middle of the road and turned at me and my boyfriend in the car. I'm about 20 feet away, so I'm slowing down so it doesn't completely destroy my car. It turned and kept walking, but the thing was so damn huge, it glided through the yard. When we passed the house, the dog thing was nowhere in sight. This house had a security light and was well inside. No sign of this thing anywhere. Next time it was seen, it was by my boyfriend. It was about two to three weeks after the initial incident. He was outside smoking a cigarette on my cabin porch. It's just a porch we store our pool stuff in. He sees the entity standing this time at the exact edge of the property, taller than the corn that it's standing next to. Corn gets hella huge, dude. Like, yeah, I've seen, like, I was really surprised the very first time I actually was, like, next to corn in a cornfield. And I'm looking at, I'm looking up, and the corn was, like, super, yeah, it's super high. And as she says here, it was about the end of August, so the corn is very tall. Oh, shit. It stood there, the same orange eyes, watching my boyfriend run into the house. Next incident was recently. I never posted about these because talking about it brings it back. Every time I told the story, it would come back. It knew. I knew I was telling people about it, almost as if talking about it gave us some sort of power or more energy. I don't know. So this next incident wasn't me. I only had the two initial occurrences. I got a call from my friend the other night, the same friend that had seen it with me in the first story, and he was frantic. He said, Kat, I saw it again. I saw it. I immediately knew what he was talking about, and I asked him where and what happened. He told me he was driving back home because of construction on the main highway. As he was driving, this black, tall figure glides across the road, and he's watching it move as it gets to the corn, as it disintegrates and turns into smoke and travels into the cornfield. Can someone tell me I'm not a psycho, and this might have a name? I haven't seen the entity since 2017. I don't ever want to again because the overwhelming feeling of just domination and the devil. I'm not religious by any means. This thing reminds me of something I saw when I did the Ouija board too many times in high school. It starts with a Z. I saw him standing at the foot of my bed and a few places in my house, but it gives me the feeling of pure dread and death. Everything negative. I'm not sure if they're correlated or not. I doubt it, but honestly, the feelings are the same. KT. This is one of the things I'm sure you're going to miss. My facial expression throughout that whole story was one of <laughs> disbelief and terror. Yeah. But it's like, never speak about that again. Just never. She should just, that, that person should just but never. But what the hell is it? On all, like, first I was like, okay, dark being, shadow person. But then they said all fours. And I'm just like. And then sometimes it's taller than the, the field. Like, like that's huge. It's like a movable, shapeless like animal. Sh- I don't know. It's. Definitely needs to stop speaking about it forever. 
It almost sounds like maybe it's something she released. That's what I'm saying. Like, again, Ouija boards are a horrendous idea. And you never know what you're releasing. She could have released that shit and it just could have followed her. Maybe it just now got to her or it needed this much time to get power. You don't know. Ooh, that that's insane knows. and that's creepy and that's that's creepy. Yeah, that's why I wanted to tell you guys it. Thank but you. it was good. Thank so. you for the creepy, the creepy factor. <laughs> Definitely. So we've been recording this podcast for like six months at this point, and I think it takes a lot to shock us. We've heard a lot of stuff. Yeah. But there is there are cases once in a while that pop up that kind of like they sh- kind of shake you and they're like, what the fuck did I just research? That's the situation going on with this case. Like it literally had me in forums and looking up articles until like three or four in the morning. Like I didn't have work the next day. Uh oh. And it put you in. The, it literally put me in a tailspin it, the way Reddit does. Like I always call it the spiral. Yeah, I spiraled. Yeah. I spiraled hard. I was on Reddit. I was on everything that you could possibly imagine because I didn't understand what the hell was going on with this case. And I'm like, this has got to be fake. Like someone definitely wikipedia something stupid and like this isn't what ha- no it's what happened and every time i looked up another article i got more and more details and so i'm going to tell you guys about this really mysterious death of someone named charles morgan so charles morgan was 39 years old and living in tucson arizona he lived with his wife and his two daughters he worked at an, at an escrow agency uh some articles said he owned it some of them said he was president but either way he was like a head guy at an escrow agency and if you want me to tell you what escrow is i have no idea i really don't escrow is when i, don't, I never know how to explain it escrow is basically like a time period where someone either purchases something and it's like kind of left in limbo or someone passes away and their belongings or their money or the estate is left just to make sure logistically everything's lined up okay, and someone's in charge of that. That's so kind of that. what escrow is. He worked with an escrow agency. And before this craziness happened, like the article said, like his life, he just lived an unassuming life. Nothing crazy, nothing fancy, nothing special. They don't even have a lot of information about him when he was growing up. Just nothing, nothing crazy. But that all changes on March 22nd, 1977. His whole life seemed to take this incredibly twisted turn. He went to work, but before he went to work, he took his daughters to school, normal. And later that night, he just didn't come home, went missing. Three days later, on March 25th, well, his wife, she reported him missing first. And then three days later, she gets woken up, 2 a.m. And when she opens the door, she sees her husband looking disheveled. And this is a quote from her because there was a lot of, I found a lot of articles were really good quotes from her because uh, people wanted to talk to her. So I'm she sure. said, yeah, she said, I'm in bed and the dog started barking. I got up, went to the door and opened it. And there was Chuck. He was missing a shoe, had a plastic handcuff around one ankle and another set around his hands. When he motioned to his throat and didn't say a word, I asked him, can you talk? Can you write? He just shook his head. Yes. So I went, got a tablet and got a pen. He wrote that his throat had been painted with a hallucinogenic drug and that the drug could drive him irrevocably insane or destroy his nervous system and kill him. I wanted to call the doctor and the police, but he was adamant that that would be signing a death warrant for the entire family. Now, I actually tried to look up what kind of drugs could do this, and I literally couldn't find a damn thing. I couldn't find a drug that you could that would do something like this. Is he sure this this wasn't like a hallucination? I don't know. Maybe it was. Like, it could have been a complete crock of shit. And he just took, like, they just gave him a drug that made him paranoid and think that. But, and every article described it the same way. And it kept saying his throat was painted. And who is, who is they? No idea. 
which is something she says also. She just kept referring to them, to whoever did this to him as them. And then he asked his wife to move his car because he didn't want them to know he was back. Because he had eventually told her that he was able to escape his captors and that they had kidnapped them and taken him near Phoenix's airport and he escaped them somehow. And all he said was them. He started writing to her, said, you know, I was abducted. I was tortured. He claimed that a $2 bill was taken and then he got it back, which that becomes important later. But they specifically took a $2 bill, which... um, So they robbed him too? But only of the bill. I don't know, but it becomes the two dollar bill becomes important later. But he specifically told his wife that, and then you know, so she nurses her husband back to health. And the way that she does this is she has to literally feed him with an eyedropper because of this drug that's painted in his throat. And then right as his voice is starting to return, where he's still communicating with her, like through writing, he starts to hint to her that he has a secret identity as an agent for the federal government. Hmm. She states he wrote. They took my treasury identification. That was the first I'd heard of it. Then he told me he had been working for them for about two or three years, and that was it. Apparently, for the last two or three years, he had been a secret agent for the federal government and fought against organized crime. So I saw in the research that in the 70s, Arizona actually became known as like a haven for money laundering Mm. because they had a law allowing anyone to buy land through blind trust accounts. So they could basically it made it so that the mafia could launder money without leaving any traces because you can't trace anything back to a blind trust account. Wow, that's pretty crazy. And I don't know why any state would have this law, but because they had this law, it was really, really big for the mafia and stuff. So apparently in that time, there was over 500 racketeers that were conducting business in Arizona. So as an escrow agent, he was the only person who would know the actual owner's identity in situations like this. Other than that, nobody else would know. So as a result, the state was kind of experiencing a lot of mafia-style crime. And he had mentioned to his wife that money laundering had been going on, but he always claimed not to be a part of it. And then we hear this, that he was helping the government against organized crime. Now, once he recovered from this hallucinogenic drug in his throat, he became extremely paranoid. And so he was on edge. He grew a beard, refused to let his daughters go outside alone. He wore a bulletproof vest at all times. He didn't allow anyone to drive his daughters to and from school except for him. And that included his wife. Nobody. And this was all post first abduction, correct? Post the first abduction. Okay. Um, He even spoke to the school people, like the school officials, and said, no one is allowed to take them except for me. And then he did this weird thing where he told his family that if anything happened to him, he would leave a letter explaining everything, Hmm. like who did it and everything that happened. Not sure why he wouldn't just tell them, but he said, I'll leave you a letter. One weird thing about that is like, if something happens to me, I have a chance to write you a letter. You know what I mean? Which means that either it's written already or like you anticipate something happening. Like either that or someone's nice enough to like be like, okay, write the letter down. Wait, before you kill me, can I just write this letter first? Yeah, that doesn't sound like how it works, Chuck. This is happening because he goes by the Chuck. Chuck disappears again around two months later. On the morning of his disappearance, he dropped his daughters off at school like normal. And in the late afternoon, he apparently called his office from a downtown payphone. That is right. A payphone because it's the 70s and there's no cell phone. And he told his office he would be arriving in around half an hour. He had also been attend- uh, planning on attending a Masonic meeting that night, that evening. He was a Freemason. 
For those of you who don't know what the Freemasons are, a very quick general rundown is they're members of an international order established for mutual help and fellowship, which hold elaborate secret ceremonies. So they have these Masonic meetings, and he was supposed to go to one that night. But he never showed up for work. So again, he gets reported missing. Nine days later, there's no sign of him. But his wife receives a really, really odd phone call from a woman who doesn't identify herself. Quote, this woman said, Ruthie? I said, yes. She said, Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastics 12, 1 through 8. And then she hung up. In some articles, it stated that she said Chuck is all right. Everything is all right. But there's an Unsolved Mysteries episode on this. And that's what Ruth says. Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastics 12, 1 through 8. And that's all she says. I looked up the passage and this is the passage from that specific thing that she said. Yeah, I was going to say because I don't know the Bible like that, so... I went to Catholic school, so you think I would, but I don't. Men are afraid of a high place and terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, two days after this phone call, it's June 18th, 1977. His body is found alongside his car on a dirt road around 40 miles west of his home. But the crime scene has some really interesting findings. For one thing, the cause of death was a single bullet to the back of the head fired at close range. One article actually said that the bullet traveled all the way through and settled in his teeth. His own 357 Magnum had been used to shoot him in the back of the head and was found laying right beside him. So they didn't even try to like hide that it was no, an execution. Absolutely not. He was still wearing his bulletproof vest. In the car, there was a bunch of ammunition as well as several other weapons and several sets of handcuffs. His car has had been modified so that it could be locked and unlocked from the fender. What? Yep. Huh. That was like the strange, one of the strangest things I'd ever like. I'm like, who even does that? I mean, someone that's expecting to get stuck in there. Right. I guess he was trying to hatch an escape plan. But yeah, he could unlock it and lock it from the fender. There were no fingerprints at the scene, including on the gun. But he had gunpowder residue. But he was right-handed and the gunpowder was on his left hand. His belt buckle had a concealed knife. In the rear seat of the car, one of his teeth was wrapped in a handkerchief. And then there was a piece of paper with the directions to the very spot where he was found in his handwriting. And then a $2 bill, which I did look up because I found, I didn't know how weird it was to have a $2 bill because I know they were taken out of production, but apparently they were in circulation from 1862 to 1966 and then resumed again in 1976. So it wasn't odd that he had a $2 bill. But what was on the $2 bill is what was strange. So on it were various random words, some drawings referencing the Freemasons. I only saw one article that said that, but I thought it was interesting. And since it had been like said that he was a Freemason, Mm -hmm. it sounds like it could be true. But every single article said that this $2 bill had seven Spanish names, beginning with the letters A to G. Acevedo, Bejarano, Cairo, Duarte, Encinas, Fuente, Gradillas. Above the name was Ecclesiastics 12, which was the same Bible verse that woman called up and told Ruth about. Arrows pointed at the numbers 1 and 8 within the bill's serial number. And then on the back, the signers of the Declaration of Independence were numbered 1 through 7. And there was a roughly drawn map. And the map represented the town of Robles Junction and Salas City, an area between Tucson and Mexico known for drug smuggling. Interesting. So all of this is on this $2 bill. Wow. 
Very crazy. Which is why I'm one, you know, one of the first things I thought of was that why it was such a big deal that they took the $2 bill the first time and then gave it back to him. Like, was this already written on it? Did they, somebody else write it on there? Like, what? Sounds like an encryption. It sounds like an encryption or a code. And that's why I said it was like important that we noticed the $2 bill. Now, two days after his body is found, a woman going by the name Green Eyes calls the police department and provides some really interesting information on Charles. She claims to have met Charles in a motel shortly before his death and that he showed her a briefcase containing thousands of dollars in cash. He told her that there was a contract on his life. Now, there was two different amounts I found in several articles. Some articles said 90000 some said 60000 Either way, in the 70s, that's a shitload of money. And apparently, he stated that there was a contract out on his life for either sixty or 90000 and that it was escalating at a rate of $5,000 per day. He then told her that the money was to buy himself out of the contract that the mob had put on his life. So like basically, I guess the mob had told someone to kill him and he thought he was going to offer this guy money and maybe the guy wouldn't kill him. Right. He thought he could counter. He thought he could like Like, negotiate basically. And then the woman also admitted to being the same person that called Ruth up and gave her the weird Bible verse. Now, the authorities actually were able to confirm that Charles had in fact, stayed at a West Side motel for over a week before his death. And they confirmed that he didn't need a woman because they found it on CCB TV footage. So it seems like her story's legit. When Ruth was asked if she believed that her husband had been having an extramarital affair, she's denied it, stating, a woman knows when her man has strayed and Chuck hasn't strayed in 19 years. She doesn't believe he had an affair, but she believes that maybe this woman kind of has something to do with Like she works with him? Could could work with him, could work with the mob. Apparently a secret fucking agent, so maybe it's a no, who knows? But she doesn't believe he was cheating on her. And she also did state that he always carried a briefcase to work around with him and that that briefcase hadn't been found. So that could also lend to like the validity of this woman's story. Shortly after his body is found, because of course he was found dead near his car, his car was impounded. But while it was in police possession, somebody broke into it. See, that that is some spy shit right That's there. That's spy shit right there. And his office was ransacked. And then to add to this mystery of her husband's death, she's visited by two quote-unquote FBI agents three weeks after his death. They come in there, show her some stupid badges real quick, storm into the home, ransack everything, searching for something, didn't say what they wanted to find. No warrant. No warrant, no nothing. They just come in here, we're FBI, storm the house, look like they're looking for something. She doesn't think that they found it, and then they leave. And she never really finds out if they're part of the FBI. She didn't catch their names or anything? Didn't catch their names. She said, like, quote, she said, they open and close their identification very fast. They also said they wanted to come in and look through the house. They never said what they were looking for. And to this day, I don't even know what they were looking for. So this this is about three weeks after his death. Then, even with all of this shit going on and all of this peculiar, like, crazy shit, his death was ruled a suicide. Get the hell out of here. It was ruled a fucking suicide. Who could shoot themselves in the back of the head? If you were going to kill yourself, don't you think you would have taken off your bulletproof vest? Right. What's the point? So he's supposed and, with, with, and his with left the wrong hand. hand. Right. So yeah. with your non-dominant hand, you're gonna with your bulletproof vest on, shoot yourself in the back of the head. No way. It's not possible. Yep. It's not fucking possible. And the case is closed on August 10th, 1977, which fun fact if you've listened to our previous episodes, was the day the Sun Sand Killer was caught. But this is what the sheriff's department stated about the case. We have found no evidence that anyone took part in the death but himself. 
You're going to see him on CCT with somebody else. The wife is saying she spoke to the same chick. There's all this other evidence. The gun was wiped down. Would he wipe the gun off after yeah, he shot himself? because that's what you do when you kill yourself. You wipe the gun down and then you shoot yourself with your bulletproof vest on. Uh, that just means we don't feel like investigating this or somebody sat there and was or like, let it go. Or working with whoever and they're, they're in on or it. Or someone said, let it go. And it right. was somebody higher up and that's it. Exactly. So, the you know, Ruth, of course, she... She's like, no, there's no way he killed himself. She stated, I don't know if this will ever be solved. I'd like to know why. I don't think we'll ever find out who killed them. There is no way Chuck would have committed suicide. And even if he did contemplate suicide, he would have left a letter for his girls and for me. Right. He even said it. Right. Like, and another thing that I found in the article is they never found a piece of paper explaining what happened because... I'm sure whoever worked for him didn't want that to happen. And that was my whole point. Like, how can you say you're going to leave a letter? If you're working for something this secret and where to the point where you're so scared, you won't let even your own wife pick your children up, then clearly they're not going to be nice people. What made you think, Chuck, that you were going to be able to just write this whole explanation down? I don't understand sometimes, people. Yeah, the cops- How can even a spy be stupid? I don't know. I, I don't know. I have no idea. And they close the case and they're like, okay, committed suicide. That's it. So following Charles's death, his attorney, Ronald J. Newman, confirmed that he had testified in a secret state investigation concerning Tucson's Banco Internacional de Arizona and a former director, David Colley. Charles was an involuntary witness for the Arizona General Attorney's Office, and he was also a key witness in an investigation into illegal activity on Arizona and Mexico's border. See, why would he be involved in that, though? Well, I guess because he was the escrow agent. So I get they were trying to like build a case against one of the organized crime families. Uh, So because they have this stupid ass law and he's the only one that would have the information on who really bought the properties. He was involved in that, which you get involved in that shit. You're like, right. You're a target. Yeah. 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 Again, committed suicide. It, It was also known that he had actually done the real estate escrow for at least one mafia family. And possibly helped with the purchase of gold and platinum, which was a more convenient way to launder money. It just seems like anyone that deals with anything related to money with the mob, you end up dead. Right. Because whether you're involved in it or you just know about it, you know too much, you wind up dead, you're involved in it, something you testify, you wind up dead, you wind up dead. Like, that's just what it is. Mm -hmm. And then uh, further digging into by investigators revealed that after his testimony, several individuals were told to basically, like, divest themselves of, like, the ownership of the bank. And then he wrote these two checks on a Western title account. One was for over $300,000 and the other one was over $30,000, both for buying stock in the bank. And then the checks bounced, but then something made the checks go through. So who knows what he was involved in? Did he get that money from the mob? Who knows? And so his lawyer reported that certain factions and individuals didn't want Charles to buy any of those stocks and... After the testimony, these transactions, he expressed fear for his life. So something went down. Something shady went down. And then he gets abducted, escapes, and then kills himself, supposedly. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Right. Chuck's wife, Ruth, is not the only one who insists that he didn't kill himself. There's an investigative journalist named Don Devereaux who was certain that he hadn't been, that he hadn't committed suicide. And he starts investigating a lot of the stuff like surrounding his death. And he even stated... I've never seen in all my years as a journalist, a fellow take himself out to the desert wearing a bulletproof vest and shoot himself in the back of the head. So now he starts investigating Chuck's story. And Don states, he was around the edges of a couple of very large organized crime groups in Arizona at the time. It was very easy to get in over your head. 
And I suspect that over the years, Mr. Morgan was in that kind of situation. He was doing perhaps upwards of a billion dollars of escrow work in bullion, gold, gold bullion, and platinum. These were transactions that only existed on paper. And he was a straight businessman that probably just got a little too close to the flame. And that seems le more legitimate to me than him killing himself. Or being a fucking spy for the government. Right. Yeah. So then Don or who knows? Maybe he started working for the government. The government tends to approach people that work for the mob and ask them to switch. So that's what, I think that's a very real possibility. They, I've seen stories where they've asked people to get into the group to like get more knowledge and like they could have told them, hey, like get closer to or them. Or they approach him when they find out like, hey, we found out you're doing all this illegal shit. And we won't put now, you in jail. Now you, you need to help us. Out. us. Exactly. So, who so, knows? It happens all the time. Well, that so Don Devereaux starts really investigating and he ends up finding out that Charles had been really heavily involved in the money laundering. And by 1973, he was using his escrow business to launder large sales of gold and platinum, over a billion dollars, mostly from Southeast Asia. Interestingly, Morgan kept duplicate records of these illegal transactions, hoping they would help him in the future. Don't know what help they would have made, but that's probably what fucking got you killed. Mm -hmm. Because according to this rumor, undercover CIA agents, people from the Department of Defense and Vietnamese government officials were also involved. And one of the theories behind his death stated that, that he was killed for these records because you fucking kept records of illegal shit and duplicates. That's like when someone makes a, a tape or has something on a hard drive and... They ask you for all the copies of it. Nobody wants you tracing this shit. So he probably got killed for those records. And even Ruth said that she, you know, she didn't really know much about what Chuck was doing, but that she stated, Chuck mentioned to me once that there was money laundering going on, but nothing that he himself was involved in. He told me the less the girls and you know, the better off you will be, which is a very big thing when you're involved with something like the mob is like the less you know, the better. Now, another popular theory is that because he was working as a secret agent, that would make him a target. So... If he was doing undercover work for the government, Don Devereux believes that the clues written on the $2 bill might have been an attempt to pass coded messages to the FBI. He stated, I think the $2 bill provided the basis for some kind of code. What seemed to be missing, however, was the document that the $2 bill would unlock. If he was quietly providing assistance to the U.S. government and monitoring the activities of one of the more major organized crime families, then he wasn't a villain. He was a good guy, mm -hmm. and they need to know that. He also contacted the FBI and requested that they release information into the Morgan case under the Freedom of Information Act, you know, because they supposedly showed up at the house, right, and ransacked it. He was denied because the FBI claimed not to know who Charles Morgan was. He quoted, when I made a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI, they had never heard of Mr. Morgan, despite the fact that they obviously opened an investigation, despite the fact that FBI interviewed Mr. Morgan's attorney. They were all over this thing like a blanket for a while, but now they've never heard of the guy. He never existed. No car, no file, no nothing. See, once again, the easiest thing to do is denial. So the most, another, you know, most credible theory that we can think of is a lot of people just believe that the mob put the hit on Morgan. They believe that somehow the word got out to Charles that a hitman was coming after him. So now that he knew he was going to be killed, he decided he was going to buy himself out of the hit, which would explain the whole briefcase. 60,000 thing that he told the woman and that he agreed to meet with the man in the desert and give him the money, but that the man took the money and killed him anyway. And then furthermore, one of Charles's daughters and Ruth actually finds out, I don't know how his daughter knew, but they also, they find out, they end up finding out that he knew a lot of secret about Tucson's politicians, of course, cause he was the escrow agent behind a lot of the legal shit. And you know that whenever there's something big like money laundering, there's a politician right behind the support there's politics it. mob and money exactly. like that is the trifecta of shady shit exactly so. so 
Apparently, he had damning evidence and information on politicians working in Tucson involved in the escrow and the land deals. He, but he never gave up any information in fear for his family's life. So what Don Devereaux believes is that he just didn't know who he was involved with. Like he stated, there's a great likelihood that Mr. Morgan was in fact doing something with the government. I think this was a guy who was extremely naive about a lot of things. I think someone blew his cover and he got killed. It's the most rational, I guess. Yeah, I just he got he got in over his head. He was a good guy. He was naive and he really didn't understand the severity of working with the mob and then working with the government right after. Like mm-hmm. you don't do that. So, you know, this case is closed at this point again because he decided he committed suicide. I mean, Don Devereaux doesn't really give up though. Like he continues looking into it and in 1990, a lot of attention gets brought to the case because now it's considered like to him a cold case and he like doesn't unsolve mysteries about it and it, it starts drawing attention to the case all over again. On May 14, 1990, there's another investigative reporter, 35-year-old Doug Johnston, and he's fatally shot in his car in a parking lot outside of a computer graphics company's office where he was supposed to be working the night shift in Phoenix, Arizona. Authorities believe it's a suicide. However, his family and Don Devereaux disagree. Not only did Johnston not have any gunpowder on either of his hands, but there was no gun on the scene. And his family kind of called him the happiest man on earth. There were no signs of a suicide, no, no motive for him to be murdered. All his valuables were found on him at the scene. Don Devereaux stated that he believes that Johnston was killed by a hitman who was actually sent to kill Don Devereaux, not Johnston. Devereaux drove a similar car, lived across the street from the parking lot where he had been shot. So he thinks he was the intended target because he was investigating the death. And then they just, they just killed Johnston by accident. It does state, like I read in a couple of articles, that this theory was confirmed to him by another investigative journalist and a CIA agent, but like no names were named. But he basically states that this guy was killed by accident. It was me that they were targeting because he was drawing attention to the case. Now, not long after this, Don gets contacted by another investigative reporter named Danny Casolaro. They were both investigating the Charles Morgan case. But Danny was investigating the financial aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So he had contacted Don because he wanted to get more information. So Don agrees to kind of share some of the information he had discovered about the Charles Morgan case, particularly concerning all the transactions with the gold bullion and the, and the platinum and stuff. Um, so Don actually, he asked, he wanted to know what Castellaro knows. So he asked him to send the information. But before Danny's able to send him what he knows, he's found dead. What? Yep. A cleaning lady found Castellaro's body in the bathtub of a motel in Martinsburg, West Virginia. His wrist had been slashed 12 times with a razor blade, eight times on the left, four cuts on the right with one deep enough to sever a tendon, no signs of forced entry or struggle. A suicide note was found on the scene stating, to my loved ones, please forgive me, most specifically my son, and be understanding, God will let me in. But his wallet, his credit cards, his money were found in the room. And then his family refuses to accept that he committed suicide, especially with the razor, because apparently he was deathly afraid of needles and blood. So would it make sense for him to right. slash his own Anyway, wrist? if you're afraid of that stuff, that's not be the way that, that you're That's not going to be the out. way you're going to go. Plus, his girlfriend said he had, like, he was really uncomfortable and didn't like being seen naked. So him being found naked in a bathtub didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And there were other suspicious things around his death. Like, his family was not informed of his death for two days. And then when they were informed, he was already embalmed. And you need the family's permission to embalm the body. Because you might want to do an autopsy, you might want to do all this stuff. No, they involved him for no reason, like Whoa. without the family's permission. His hotel room was cleaned by a professional cleaning crew the day after his death. At a motel. At a motel. Hmm. 
And it seems like the workers probably ended up discarding important um, evidence because one of the housekeepers says that they remember seeing two bloody towels in the bathroom and it appeared like someone had tried to clean the blood off the floor prior to them arriving. Now, Danny had been investigating the financial aspect of Charles Morgan's case. Shortly after contacting Don Devereaux, he told friends he was meeting an informant to quote unquote, bring back the head of Octopus. What's Octopus? Well, Danny believed there was a vast interlocking network of criminal conspiracy that reaches into every branch and agency of the United States government, many other national governments, and every sector of our societies. So he wanted to know about the financial aspect of Charles Morgan's death because he thinks it's connected to this whole octopus thing. So he contacts Don Devereaux for what he knows and then winds up dead due to his investigation. So now Charles's death remains a mystery. Now you've got two more dead people because they were in his investigations on his death. And then sadly, Ruth passes away in 2006, never knowing the cause of her husband's bizarre death and possible secret life. And that's it. That's all anybody knows. That's nuts. But it's interesting. Are people still kind of investigating? I feel like it's always kind of being investigated, but I feel like after this, you got to be careful because I don't find much on after this because I feel like at this point, now you've got a guy who died accidentally instead of you. And then this other guy dying because he was going to talk to you. And then you got to chill with it. And right now it's still, you know, that case is closed. Like he, he's stated as committing suicide and that's it. And I guess, again, investigating stuff like this, especially when it's mob related and secret government and all this other stuff, you got to be careful. Let's put it that way. If this was suicide, it was, it goes down in the Guinness world book of the world's strangest suicide. Right. A suicide that led to other deaths because it was being investigated like yeah no way sorry not gonna buy it anyways i'm freaked out and let's move on to the who does that shall we so sure just because just i'm just thinking like i don't want the mob to hear this we don't believe anything suicide sure yeah that's it who does that who does that who does that that? via huffpost.com suspects loud fart helps police sniff out his hiding place (laughs) (laughs) The Liberty Police Department in Missouri said no one was hurt by the blast. That's literally what it says. I'm not making that up. Oh, my God. I want the job of the person who wrote this article. Like, I just want to write this type of article. Yeah. Just want to do clever subtitles (laughs) and headlines. A man trying to elude police in Missouri ended up being betrayed by his own backside. Liberty Police Department officers over the weekend were searching vainly for a man wanted on warrant charging possession of a controlled substance, according to the Kansas City Star. The suspect might have gotten away had he not been portrayed by his own butt. Oh my God, this is the best it's, job ever. I know, this is like this the is great most clever <laughs> article yet. It seems the man let out a huge fart right at the wrong time, allowing officers to sniff out where he was hiding. Oh, so it wasn't said. even based off the sound? Dude, what'd you eat? No, he let out a huge fart. They <laughs> could hear it. Cops didn't release the man's identity. Yeah, lucky for you, bro. <laughs> embarrassing no on honestly so many levels. you don't want to be told like if that guy's waiting in jail like yo how'd you get caught you know you don't want I that farted and the police you don't me. want that person to be able to google your name later bro so good call the nearby clay county sheriff's office got wind of the arrest oh man this is so <laughs> this good is such clever journalism. it's so clever i love this person off the arrest and decided to turn it into a cautionary tale presumably to discourage others from engaging in criminal behavior or at least avoiding beans before any illegal activity quote if you've got a felony warrant for your arrest, the cops are looking for you, and you pass gas so loud it gives up your hiding spot, you're definitely having a day. Hashtag Tuesday thoughts, hashtag happened. Liberty Police Department apparently appreciate the tweet, not just for the publicity, but for the opportunity to omit some flatulence wisecracks. 
And yes, let them rip. <laughs> HuffPost reached out to the police department, but no one immediately responded. The capture raises at least one stinking question. When the suspect is brought before a judge, will there be odor in the court? <laughs> This is the best, oh, art, the best written the article I have ever, ever <laughs> Oh, man. Seriously, that was so good. I can't. It was awesome. Let's see. This was by David Moy. Yeah. David Moy, you that was are clever. a true, true hero. I could tell you're a farter because you were ready. You had all... I swear, you had all those jokes just on the back he, I knew waiting to finally write them into I like, could tell it was a male writing this just because I was like, you have the fart joke fart after fart you're joke like, after yeah. fart. Men find farts the, the most They find it funny thing. for their whole lives. I like to find it... I find it funny to like read about like that in situation. Right. But do I want to be sitting next to someone who is like literally like... Ripping it? Like ripping it like know. an orchestra? No, I don't want to have like an... Seriously, it gets really bad. Like, but guys can just like sit in a room and fart and find it hilarious. And I'm like, you guys are five. They're like, disgusting. You're five forever. Apparently, even criminals can't hide it. Like, dude, that's the thing. I think women are better at holding it in. Like, well, I can hold it in. A child that's is because like, as it women, kills we have to me. because people like never want to accept that women fart. But it's not just that too. I just think there's a time and a place. Men right. just let it rip. Like Girls anywhere. Like, we're just. I guess we're just mindful human beings. Shocking, I know. But like, we just. But, like, dude, you're trying to hide, and you just, like, so since I'm in the woods, I'm just going to let it go? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the thought process is. I never want to think like a man. I, I want, you know, the funny thing is, that whole article, and we don't even know the crime that you did for them to be looking for you. All we know is that your fart got you caught. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the crazy part about it. So true. But, but that was awesome. That was great. That was a good one. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please like, subscribe, leave us a review. Check us out on social media. Email us at theeriemericas at gmail.com. You know the whole deal. But most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye.